So last week, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, and Daniel was absent from that chapter. Daniel is back in chapter four. We've got the first 27 verses summed up with a big declaration, a big tree, a big lesson, and some big advice. So we'll start with verse one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So right off as we start the chapter, you know, we ended with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being promoted. And now this chapter just begins differently, doesn't it? It sounds more like a letter than sort of a narrative. And that's because it is. It's an official document, an official declaration. This is a part of scripture that was actually written by a Gentile pagan king. And it's made its way here into Daniel. Daniel's included it in his writing. And that's why it looks kind of different. It reads kind of different. And it is kind of different. It's interesting to me that the most powerful person on the face of the earth 2,600 years ago decides he's going to write a letter. And who's he writing to? Who's the intended audience for this letter? Everybody. The known world at the time. This is going out. It's like he had internet. He's going to put it on his Twitter feed. So everybody can read. It's going out to the world, every nation, every tongue, anybody who is there on the face of the earth, he says, needs to know what I'm going to tell you. What's the purpose? He's declaring God's personal activity in his life. Did you see that? He says, I thought it good in verse two to declare the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. Now, he doesn't quite get the whole monotheistic one and only and true living God. Remember, he's in a culture of polytheism, many gods. The primary god for Babylon was the god Marduk, also called Bel. That'll be important later. So they had a pantheon of all kinds of different gods for different things, the god of war, the god of love, the god of this, the god of that, all these different gods. But now he's met Daniel's god. Remember in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and this chapter is going to revolve around another dream that he had. In chapter two, it was the big statue made out of all the different metals and increasing in strength, decreasing in value and all that. And no one could tell him what the dream meant. And Daniel told him what the dream was and what it meant. And he was astounded by the fact that Daniel could do that, that Daniel's God could provide him with that understanding. This chapter is another dream. And as he writes this, he's reflecting back on what has happened as a result of this dream and what he's learned from it. And he's declaring to the whole world that the most high God has done something specific for him. I mean, we tend to look at God as kind of a general entity. He's a spiritual force or it or whatever. He, she, it is a spiritual force out there somewhere that maybe created the world, but that's about it. Most people, many people don't see God as having a personal influence or activity in our lives. But Nebuchadnezzar sees that. He sees that God has done something very specific for him. And when you experience God personally that way, you want to tell people. This is not a general statement, a general idea about a general God being. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying, I had a real personal encounter with the Most High God. And he did something for me. He's actually going to teach Nebuchadnezzar a big lesson that we'll get to 
later on. Now, what makes the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth decide, I'm going to write a world about God? I mean, how cool is that? We can't even tell our neighbors. We're afraid to tell someone we work with. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a witness to the power and the mighty works of God in his day. And I think people kind of listen to him. Who knows what impact this had on the world that he lived in at the time? It's interesting because some people suggest that Daniel might have actually been Nebuchadnezzar's speechwriter, that maybe Daniel actually wrote this because of what he says. He says in verse three, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that. Remember, he built the image in chapter three that everybody's bowing down to. It's not just the head of gold. It's the whole statue is made of gold. And the idea is that Nebuchadnezzar felt like he was building this everlasting kingdom. And God had to fix that. He's delusional. Like so many people are delusional. His version of reality is that he's awesome. He's the sovereign ruler of the world. The buck stops with him. And his kingdom is going to last forever. And God's going to step in and show him he's delusional. Your version of reality, Nebuchadnezzar, is not reality. It's not real. And I think that's no different from what God still does in people's lives. He comes in and he says, your version of reality is not true. Pride affects the way we see ourselves, affects the way we see the world around us, affects the way we see other people. And Nebuchadnezzar had to learn from God. How does he learn? How does he learn that God has this everlasting kingdom and his isn't. What's the process? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers came in and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. So he's recounting the experience. He says, you know, one day I was just chilling out in my home, my palace. He had, I think, three palaces in Babylon, very ostentatious, very lavish. And I was at ease. I was resting in one of my palaces and flourishing and I think this is interesting because we get the timing when God reaches out to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't at a time in his life where he was in the gutter, strung out on drugs, alcoholic, lost his family, in prison, none of that stuff. He's not in prison, he's in the palace. And that's when God reached out to him. That's the timing of this thing when God says, I'm going to give this guy a dream. And I think sometimes we value those testimonies where, oh, I was down and out and I was this and I was that. And then God got a hold of me and he built my life back up. Well, God had to tear down this guy's proud life before he could ever build him up again. Sometimes God has to tear something down before he can build it up. And that's the story with Nebuchadnezzar. See, he thought he was so great and he thought he was invincible and he thought all of these things about himself. And that's more, I think, in line with my testimony I was living the dream. I was living a good life, a good job, incredibly handsome, wonderfully intelligent, all those things. Uh, everybody laughs when I say that. 
you know, I was working in Charlottesville, job at the hospital. Life was good. Life was good for me. I had friends. I had money. I had whatever I need. I had a car, a place to stay. Life was good. Food in the pantry. Life was good. But I was still a sinner. And God came to me at that good moment in my life, at the time when everything was going good, and said, Steve, you're a sinner who still needs a Savior. Sometimes success is more dangerous for us than failure. Or success is more dangerous because it makes us think, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. That's where his heart was. And the dream comes at that time in his life. Verse 5, he says, I saw a dream. And what did the dream cause? Just like chapter 2, what he saw troubled him. It was disturbing. Just like in chapter 2, the dream was disturbing. So God comes a second time to Nebuchadnezzar with a dream that disturbs him. We often wonder, how does God reach people? Are there people that are going to go to hell because they never heard? That's not fair. If you had to plan it out, how would you plan reaching the most powerful person on the face of the earth? If you wanted someone to hear the gospel, to hear about God, and it was a person like Nebuchadnezzar, his life insulated, living in the palace, how would you ever get to the palace? Well, God puts Daniel there, and then God comes to him in a dream. I have friends, and there's a guy that was here in our church last year who works with Muslims. And I did a little more research on this because I'd heard about it. I heard it from him, and then I did some reading. In 2007, Dudley Woodbury and others published a study that recounted interviews with 750 former Muslims who had converted to evangelical Christianity. Many of the reasons they gave for their conversion would be expected. The love of God, changing view of the Bible, and attraction to Christians who loved others. But one reason might come as a surprise. The experience of a dream they believed to be from God. Well, maybe that was an isolated incident. Turns out it wasn't. Another study, this time reported in Missions Frontier, showed that out of 600 Muslim converts, 25% experienced a dream that led to their conversion. And I'd heard about that, but I just did a little research, and it turns out God is reaching where no evangelists might be able to get, where there's tremendous persecution and risk. God is able to get there by bringing dreams to Muslims who are knowing they're having an encounter with the living God, with Jesus Christ, through a dream, and they're responding to it by converting to Christianity. So what we're reading about Nebuchadnezzar is not unique to Nebuchadnezzar. It's a Middle Eastern person who God is reaching through a dream, or at least attempting to reach through a dream. Now, the other interesting thing before we move on is look at verse 7. Magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, all of his cabinet, his counselors, all the guys that he turned to for help, that he came to them for the dream, the interpretation, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. It doesn't say they could not. The dream is not a very difficult dream, a tree that gets cut down. We'll go into that in detail. So the question is, did they not know what it meant or were they just not willing to tell them? They looked around, they looked at each other. Oh yeah, we know what that means, but I'm not telling them. You tell them. Last time, you know, dreams happened. We were all in danger of losing our lives and our houses being turned into ash heaps. I'm not telling them what the dream means. You tell them. I'm not telling them. You tell them. And then finally, someone says, well, go get Daniel. Daniel will tell him. Daniel will tell him anything. So verse eight reflects that. But at last, it's almost like a sense of relief. At last, Daniel came before me. Where was he? We don't know. But finally, he shows up for the party, the meeting. And uh, ah, 
Daniel's here. Because Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel's the real deal. Look what he says here. Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian name, which means Bel protects his life. Now, I told you earlier, the primary god of the patron god of Babylon was a god named Marduk, also called Bel, B-E-L. So when you read Daniel's Babylonian given name as Bel to Shazar, the root there is the god Bel, and it means Bel protects his life. So Daniel comes, and Nebuchadnezzar wants us to know, wants the world to know that, hey, his name is Bel to Shazar, according to the name of Nebuchadnezzar says, my God, singular. So Nebuchadnezzar's not a convert. I mean, he's seen the mighty works of God. A lot of people see the mighty works of God, but they still have their God that they worship. Their little thing that they trust. Their bank account, their health, their whatever. So Nebuchadnezzar still has his God he's not letting go of. In him, in Daniel, is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him. Now stop right there. Anybody reading a King James version by any chance? Okay, your version says, in him is the spirit of the holy gods, plural. And that's actually a more accurate rendering. It's plural, which really is to say that what Nebuchadnezzar is probably expressing is that in Daniel, there's a certain spirit. This guy is a really spiritual guy. He really hears from the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar is growing up. He's part of a culture of polytheism. So because the culture of polytheism is so strong, he still doesn't quite get this monotheistic, this loyal relationship with the true and living God. He's still sort of trusting in these other gods that he has. So God is still coming to him. God is still working with him, but he doesn't quite get it. So he says, I told the dream before Daniel, and this is his account of telling the dream to Daniel. Daniel or Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Notice where Daniel was serving. He's the chief of the magicians. Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches and all flesh fed from it. So this is the second part. We go from the big declaration to the big tree. It's actually part of his dream. The dream revolves around a tree. Notice where Nebuchadnezzar is. Just like in chapter two, he's an onlooker. He's an outsider looking on to the action in his own dream. So he's looking and what does he see? He sees a tree and it's in the middle of the earth. So we learn something about the tree. It is the center of attention. Take note, the tree is the center of all attention of planet earth. It's in the middle of the planet. And is it a small tree or is it a big tree? It's a big tree and it's getting bigger. It's growing. The height of the tree was great. So it's extremely tall. And he says in the dream, it was growing. It grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. Does that remind anybody of something in Genesis? The Tower of Babel was built to reach to the heavens. So we've got some commonalities here. That's not coincidence. In the dream, this great height 
growing higher and higher, bigger and bigger, taller and taller, aspiring to reach to the heavens, this tree. But what's the psychology that comes with being tall? Or what's the perception of height, strength, power, even leadership? Think about the nation of Israel when they said they wanted a king. Who did they choose? They chose Saul. Why did they choose Saul? He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was tall. He looked like a leader. So there's this equation with height and greatness and power and strength. Again, it's not a tree that was dying. This is a tree that's growing. It's vibrant. It's growing and it's increasing. Interestingly, Nebuchadnezzar, the growth of his empire happened was he would drain every new territory that he controlled of all its gold and all its treasures. Then he would invest them in building or rebuilding Babylon. Babylon had been under Assyrian rule. So under Nebuchadnezzar, they were experiencing what I would call the Babylonian Renaissance. Babylon was being reborn under Nebuchadnezzar, and it was beautiful to look at. Did you notice that about the tree? It's not an ugly tree. Anybody ever seen an ugly tree? Well, this tree in the dream, its foliage, its leaves were lovely, and its fruit was abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven dwelt in it, and everybody was fed from it. So it's beautiful to look at, as was Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And it provided protection and safety for the animals, the creatures that were connected to it. The Greek historian Herodotus claimed that Babylon surpassed in wonder any city in the known world at that time. And he specifically praised the walls that encompassed Babylon. 56 miles worth of walled-in city. The walls were 80 feet thick and 320 feet high. Some say Herodotus exaggerated a little bit, but even if he did exaggerate a little bit, everybody, every historian admits and comments on the majesty of Babylon and the nature of these walls that were triple walls. You lived in Babylon, you thought you were impervious to any outside influence, any trouble. The walls were impregnable. No one can get in. We feel completely safe. So I'm just wetting your whistle as we get up to the interpretation, showing you that these things are meaningful. So that's the tree. And he explains that to Daniel. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher. So another element in the dream, a holy one coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said this, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. So part two of the dream is something he calls a watcher. We would say maybe an angelic being of some sort. The word watcher is Assyrian for like having eyes open, someone who's paying attention, someone who's guarding, something like that. And this watcher comes down from heaven and again, makes a declaration. The watcher doesn't destroy the tree, doesn't cut down the tree, but he says the tree is going to get cut down, chopped down, cut off, stripped, scattered. If a tree is diseased or dead, you can expect that. But why would you do that? This doesn't make any sense. Why a tree that's perfectly healthy, doing great, providing all this foliage for the creatures and providing food, why would that happen? Good question. And you'll find out as we go through. I've been the butt of many jokes in the recent past because I bought a battery-powered, wait for it, chainsaw. I know, those things don't seem to go together. 
But someone was telling me about it, and I thought, yeah, it sounds interesting. I don't like getting out to the shop, and my chainsaw won't start up. So I said, let me try a battery-powered chainsaw. So the guys that know me, oh, battery-powered chainsaw, like play school toys. Vroom, vroom, Pastor Steve. So I got teased a lot. But I'll tell you, I can take down a tree with my little battery-powered chainsaw. It doesn't take much. A tree can grow big and great and strong, and that thing can come down in a minute. And you know the saying, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Well, what about the creatures? They're going to have to get away. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. I mean, read the book of Revelation, the mighty Babylon. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar represents the whole world system apart from God. A whole life, a whole system, an economy apart from God, an educational system apart from God, a government apart from God, religion apart from God, all of that without God. That's what's represented by Babylon. And we see that in the book of Revelation, this mighty Babylon that all these other people latched on to for greatness and for power, it's going to fall. So here, these creatures, they're going to have to find somewhere else to go for their safety. Verse 15, still in the dream. Nevertheless, the dream says, and the watchers leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze around the stump evidently to protect it, in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet, it the stump, with the dew of heaven. And look at the transition here. And let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Notice the transition from it, the stump, to him. Let his heart be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the heart of a beast. So whatever's happening to the stump is now about a person who's going to get a change of heart. And it's going to last for a period of time and let seven times pass over him. Seven years. A year being a section of time. Notice this. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whoever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. The first thing I want to point your attention to is verse 17. The decision, all that's going to happen to the stump that's a person, all of it is happening and the person has no say in the matter whatsoever. The decision is outside of that person. The watchers, they're making the decree. You already figured out that Nebuchadnezzar is the person, right? So Nebuchadnezzar, the dominant, supreme, sovereign world ruler of his time, he's now being told that there's a decision being made in your life that you have no control over. Now that's jaw-dropping to someone like Nebuchadnezzar who thinks that they say jump and everybody else has to say how high. Nebuchadnezzar decided who lived and who died. The buck stopped with him. But this decision in his dream, this is what he's hearing in the dream. The decision is by the decree of the watchers. And what was the big lesson in the dream? That the living may know that the most high God rules in the kingdoms of men, gives it to whomever he will, and he sets over it the lowest of men. The big lesson is that God rules. The big lesson for us, the relevance to today, part of the reason I chose this months ago in an election year. And who knows how crazy things will get come November whether it's how we do an election in the midst of a pandemic, whether it's who gets elected or who doesn't get elected, how people are going to respond to all the craziness. 
I have no idea what's coming, but this is what we do know. The big lesson is God rules actively in human government throughout history all over the world. Not just America, but Russia and China and everywhere. God rules over human politics and human government. Now, who needs to know that? He says, the living. Take your pulse. Are you living? Then you need to know that while you're living, that God rules in the kingdoms of men. One of the reasons this has become one of my favorite passages in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is because becoming a Christian changed the way I understood history. It was really cool. History became so much more meaningful to me. World history did. In my reading, I found out that there's a man named Ben Franklin. I grew up in Philadelphia, so I know Ben Franklin. I went to the Franklin Institute growing up. Not school, it's a museum, just in case you're wondering. Steve went to the Franklin Institute. (laughs) 81 years old, he's involved with writing and ratifying our nation's constitution. And they were hashing this out in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and struggling to get a document that they could agree on and that they liked and that was good. And in the middle of that, in the middle of all the controversy and all the difficulty, Ben Franklin, again at age 81, speaks up and addresses the whole convention and the president. And he starts out by talking about the difficulties that they're facing at the time. He says, we've made small progress for the last four or five weeks we've been meeting together. I'm paraphrasing it. We have different feelings, different opinions on almost every issue. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we're divided, we're split, we can't agree on anything. We take a vote, it's 50-50, we can't get unified in one direction. And he says, I think this is a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. Can we say amen to that? It's a sad commentary on humanity that we can't agree on how things should be organized or run. He says, we even sense that we're groping like in the darkness to find truth. This is what he says. I'll read word for word. He says, in this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when it's presented to us, How has it happened, sir, speaking to the president, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the father of lights to illuminate our understanding? Who's he talking about? God. With him, there's no shadow of turning. James talks about that. How did we not think about this? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we got into this revolution thing, when we were sensible of the danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. When we were in danger, we prayed every day for God's help and protection. And he says our prayers were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. We saw and we experienced God answering our prayers. To that kind of providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten, Ben Franklin says, that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? Did you ever read that in school? I never read that in school. When we were desperate, when we were small, when we were in trouble, we cried out to God for help. And he answered, now that we've come this far, do we think that we are so smart we don't need God anymore? Do you see why I feel like this passage is so relevant to our day? 
Now, I'm not stopping there. I'm going to read a little bit more and you'll see the connection. Ben Franklin goes on. He says, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. He quotes in the Constitutional Convention, Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar needs to learn that God rules in the affairs of men. He gives government to whom he will for his purposes. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, the Bible, that, quote, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, God's, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builder's of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests and our projects will be confounded and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. How relevant is that speech to us, to our government today? He goes on to say, I think we should pray before every meeting, before we do any business. And they agreed And they did that. And I believe, don't quote me on this, I'm going from memory, but I believe that within two weeks of this petition, they were finished, had a ratified constitution. So for weeks they struggle. They say, maybe we should pray. Boom, God puts it together. Now, he's obviously referring to and understanding the big lesson for our nation, but that's not just for the nation. That's for me and for you. Did you see what Ben Franklin said? He said, I know what the Bible says, that unless the Lord builds your little capital, a little small E empire, unless the Lord builds it, you labor in vain. Now, I was taught that so many of the founding fathers were deists, that Ben Franklin was a deist. Do you know the word deism or deist? A deist is someone who believes in God, the existence of an almighty creative being, a supreme being who creates, but then lets things go, doesn't have anything to do with the running, the daily life on planet Earth. He leaves that up to human reason. So God creates man. God puts man on planet Earth. Now it's up to man to figure it out himself through his reason. How's that working for us? Oh my goodness. The term accepts the existence of a creator on the basis of reason, but rejects belief in a supernatural deity who interacts with humankind. That's a deist. God exists, but has nothing to do with human affairs. I don't know about Ben Franklin's entire spiritual life and history, but I can tell you that when he spoke those words in Philadelphia, he was not a deist. He believed in a God that was actively involved and petitioned through prayer to be involved with the activities of our daily lives, our mundane lives, and even our nation's existence. And we have forgotten that. Some of you may have forgotten that. You sit down to eat your food and you're grateful because you have a job and a house to live in and a pantry and money in the bank, but you fail to thank God. You figure you accomplished it yourself. It was your smarts and your job and your work and your resume. And you forget that you had no choice as to where you'd be born, when you'd be born, or that you'd have skills that somebody wanted. Pride. So, that the living may know that the most high rules, he gives it to whomever he will, and who does he choose to give it to? He sets over it the lowest of men, not wicked men, lowly men, humble. This is about humility. 
Think about King David called to be king, anointed as a little shepherd boy. He was not even thought of by his father when a king was being chosen. God chose David. And then what about Mary when Jesus comes into the world in human flesh? Does he choose his God's son to be born into the temple to the family of the high priest? No, it's a little servant girl, a little girl from Nazareth, a podunk town, a good for nothing town. Does anything good come out of there? God is trying to communicate something to your heart because we live in the midst of a Babylonian spirit of this world is you are number one. You got to make your advances. You got to climb the ladder. And it doesn't matter how many people you step on to get there. People need to notice you and you need to advance ambitiously in the world that you live in. I'm not saying ambition is bad, but the question is who gets the glory when you succeed? So Mary says in her Magnificat, when she sings a song, she says, God has regarded the lowly state of his maidservants. We think that God can only use great and awesome and powerful people with lots of letters after their name that have been to seminary and have all this education. And God is trying to communicate to you and to me that if you have a gazillion letters after your name and you're full of pride about what you've accomplished, God can't use you. He'll take the kingdom away, just like with Saul. When Saul grew proud, God stripped the kingdom away from him and gave it to David. God stripped the kingdom away from Ahab, gave it to his commander, Jehu. I mean, over and over and over and over and over in the Bible, God is sending a message that what he is looking for, and it's most obvious in his son, looking for humility. Someone who will bend down and wash feet. And Jesus goes from heaven, talk about a step down in the world, goes from eternally present with his father in heaven. He takes on human form. What a step down for God to inhabit a body like this. And then he's a servant and he's killed by his creation, but not just in any old way, in the most humiliating way possible on planet earth at that time, he's killed on a cross. And then he goes down even lower. He's buried in a tomb. You want to talk about the greatest humiliation ever in the history of the world is when God becomes a man, gets crucified and is buried for God to be buried. The second person of the Trinity buried. And it's that name, the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow. And he will oversee the greatest eternal generation to generation kingdom. So what God is looking for, church, is humility. All right, we got to keep going. So this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation. He's still calling the shots. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy God or gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, we keep being reminded of that, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. And he answered, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel knows exactly what the dream means. And when Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream, Daniel is paralyzed in a sense. He's silent. He doesn't say a word. And Nebuchadnezzar, he picks up on Daniel's aspect. He picks up on his body language. He sees Daniel, the unflappable Daniel, is really troubled. And when he encourages him to talk, Daniel says, oh, king, I wish this would happen to your enemies and not you. Daniel's compassionate. Now, if I was Daniel... 
And the king said to me, well, what do you see? What do you see? What's it about? I'd say, king, little kingy poo, you are going to get what is coming to you. You are going down. Now, Daniel's not happy about that. He's actually feeling some compassion for the king. And he says, I wish I didn't have to tell you this. So he says, well, the tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. And that's true. That was true of Nebuchadnezzar. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens. I mean, even God knows of your greatness and your dominion to the end of the earth. Just like God knew about the Tower of Babel, God knew about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. So chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Chapter four, it's not the Babylonian empire. The tree does not represent an empire. The tree represents a man, a singular individual man, happens to be the greatest man serving the greatest empire on earth at the time, and it's King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel, I think, starts with the good news. Okay, here's the good news, king. You've become strong. You've grown. You've done great. Your kingdom's growing, advancing. It's prospering. That's wonderful. Now the rest of the story. Verse 23, inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it. He summarizes there. But leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation. I imagine Daniel takes a deep breath. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Verse 25, they shall drive you from men. Seems these watchers or the holy ones, the angels, shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. King, the second part of this dream, this watchers, the tree being destroyed, that's you, king, getting a dose of humbling. But notice a couple of quick things here. Remember the beginning of the dream, the tree, it's the center of attention. It's the center of all the world's attention. But now it's going to go to obscurity. They shall drive you from men. The challenge of pride, when a person experiences pride, we want others to see all the good things we're doing. We're needing affirmation. Our pride is driving us. And we want people to know just how great we are. That's a sign that there's pride in your life. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, I may have a lot of problems, but pride, I've got that licked. Okay, well, there you've just tipped your hand there. So talking to a guy earlier, he's talking about his experience in prison and just what a humbling experience that was. So when you're taken from the center of attention, the center of your group, and taken and put into isolation or taken away from the people you're trying to impress, part of the reason I don't have Facebook is because I can't handle it. Facebook's a wonderful tool. It can be used for lots of good stuff, but it is a perpetuation of human pride in a lot of ways. What would you do if you couldn't be on Facebook and you couldn't tell people, everybody, the whole world, really, that's how Facebook works. The whole world, the web, knows all about the great thing you're doing, the great thing you're involved in, how smart you are, and what you think about everything. 
and it can be a perpetuation of human pride. So sometimes God will isolate from those kinds of things to bring humility. He says, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So even going from being around all these great and mighty people to being with humble people. Again, a mark of pride is name dropping. You ever find yourself name dropping? Patting your resume, telling about all the, the good people you know. Well, I know this person. I know that person. It's all about pride. Wanting people to think more of you than you really are. So he's going to be associating with humble, the beast of the field. Instead of the palace, he's going to be in the pasture. By the time this dream is over, within one year, that's when he's going to finally experience all that he's being told he's going to experience. And you're going to eat grass like an oxen. Now there's something there too. Don't just read over these things as if they're casual details. Anybody have animals? Maybe not oxen, but anybody been around horses? Okay, how do they eat? They stick their head down to the ground, they rub their nose in the dirt, and they eat grass. Someone who's proud is pictured as having their head lifted, what position? Up. Your head is up. Someone who's humble, how is their head? Bowed down. So just by the nature of his eating, he's going to be humbled because his head is going to be down. How is this going to happen? You'll see. He's going to be going from standing tall like a tree to stooping low. Our trips to Israel, we go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem. The crusader period, there's a door there. It's only four feet tall by two feet wide. The door is called the door of humility. So a four foot tall door, what do you have to do by nature to enter in? You have to bend. You have to bow. That's how you come to Christ in Bethlehem, through the door of humility. The Welsh revival was based on a prayer for the prayer was simple. The prayer was, Lord, bend me, bend me. Now, I heard about it on the news. Beyonce makes a new album called Black is King. Has anybody else heard of that? I didn't know what this was about, so I looked it up. And as I listened to this little preview of it, there was a line in a song or a line spoken. She said, you can't wear a crown with your head down. And I was studying Daniel 4, and I'm like, wow, that really applies to Nebuchadnezzar. You can't wear a crown with your head down. Now, we know she had a different application of it. And it's interesting that her album is called Black is King. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Black is not king. White is not king. Hispanic is not king. We are all part of the creation. That's our unity. We are of one blood. One blood. There is the creator and there's the creation then as creation, we try to exalt ourselves above other creations, that this creation is better than that creation. At the end of the day, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Someone sent me a video of a basketball player, African-American basketball player. Did anybody see that? Everybody wearing the Black Lives Matter t-shirts, his basketball team, you saw it? They're all wearing the Black Lives Matter t-shirts and they're all bowing down, kneeling, except this one guy, and he's African-American. And I thought, somebody's raised a Shadrach. Now, there's Shaquille O'Neal, but then there's Shadrach. And this guy was more like a Shadrach, not a Shaq. He was big and tall in stature, not as big as Shaq, but he was big in heart. And he had that spirit that says, I'm not going to play the game of just getting on the bandwagon when the music starts, everybody bow. They interviewed him afterwards. 
And he talked about Jesus in his interview. He said, I did not take that decision lightly. I thought about it very carefully. And I decided not to bow and not to wear the t-shirt because basically he said, my allegiance is to Jesus Christ. And he said, I think it's wrong when one group decides to say another group's sin is worse than theirs. And this is not me saying it, this is him saying it. So really, I thought, boy, this guy gets it. And it just reminded me, it was a Daniel 3 moment. What character it took to do that. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to go from being the center of attention to obscurity, from standing tall to stooping low, from providing to needing from God. Remember, he was the great provider. Everybody was gathered under his tree. But now he's going to be dependent on the grass that grows. Who makes the grass grow? God makes the grass grow. You ever tried to make grass grow when it doesn't rain? You can't do it. God makes the grass grow. He makes it rain. I am powerless to do that. And now Nebuchadnezzar is going to need provision from God himself. Talk about humbling. You see, you really can't take anything away from me. And I really can't take anything away from you. At the end of the day, as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Get your eyes off of each other. Instead of saying, why are you doing this to me? Or why is this happening? It's, God, what are you doing in my life? And sometimes, oftentimes, the work of God is a humbling work. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar would say, that humbling thing I went through, it was painful, was the best thing that ever happened to me. When my life got stripped and I got cut down at the knees, I lost my job, I lost my money, lost my family. It was painful. But that's where I found God. Verse 26, inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. In other words, there's going to be mercy from God. He's going to get his kingdom back after he learns the lesson. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel gives a big piece of advice, and that advice is still true today. King, maybe there's a chance God will be merciful if you humble yourself. Break away from your former life. Break away from your thought life that you're so great and you're so proud and all that comes from that. Break away from that. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. And part of that is how you care for lowly people. Show mercy to the poor. That's real important to God. See, proud people, they figure they accomplish it themselves. Humble people recognize that maybe you've had some chances they didn't have. How can I help? 